Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before we get started, I want to welcome Audio-Technica as presenting partner for this season of Let's Talk About Sects. I've been working with their equipment from the very beginning of the show, and like many podcasters, started with an AT2020 USB mic, which has served me very well. The kind folks at Audio-Technica have now upgraded me to a BP-40, which they tell me is also perfect for screaming into if you're in a heavy metal band. So if the show's sounding particularly awesome to you, that's why. If you're not a podcaster, they have some really great options like noise-cancelling headphones for travel, some cool wireless headphones, or if you love to listen to vinyl like I do, they've got very nice turntables as well. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. Edgar Bronfman Sr. of the Seagram Liquor Fortune once wrote a testimonial for a course he had taken through an organisation called Executive Success Programs, or ESP. He said, quote, If everyone were to go through this training, the world would be a much better and safer place to live. Seventeen years later, the leader and inner circle of that same organisation, now going under the name Nexium, would be on trial for charges including sex trafficking, forced labour, fraud, extortion and child pornography. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. For returning listeners who are joining me for season three, thank you. A quick note that going into my third year of creating this show, I'm starting to take advertising to help cover my time and so that I can pay to outsource some elements rather than do it all alone. So this episode, I welcome Haley Gray as a researcher. If you can't stand any advertising, you can sign up at Patreon, where for a small monthly donation you'll be able to access ad-free episodes and the back catalogue. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes references to physical and sexual abuse, including of minors, and to suicide. 
please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Keith Ranieri was an only child, born in New York City to former ballroom dance teacher Vera and her advertising executive husband James on the 26th of August 1960. Vera and James divorced when Keith was eight, and Keith stayed with his mother after the divorce. James later told one of Keith's girlfriends that around this time Keith took an IQ test and was told that he was gifted. Apparently Keith's character completely changed after this, and he began to act as though he were superior to everyone else. Keith says that his mother was an alcoholic who often needed looking after, and Vera passed away when he was 18. He told people that he graduated from his private school, Rockland Country Day School, when he was 16, but a newspaper article in the Journal News from 1978 lists him in that year's graduating class, which conflicts with that particular claim. In his spare time, Keith enjoyed unicycling, juggling, judo, lifting weights and playing the piano. He went on to graduate from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in 1982 and claimed record-setting grades from a triple major in math, physics and biology. But as Megan Kelly later mentioned to his lawyer on Today, he was actually just a 2.2 GPA. If, like me, you're not familiar with the GPA scale, it's out of four. During his time at the Polytechnic, Keith met 17-year-old Karen Unterreiner, who would be the first of his inner circle of women he would come to surround himself with. Around this time, Keith also took Amway courses. I'm sure most of you are aware of Amway, but if you'd like to know more about its history and about multi-level marketing companies in America, I can highly recommend checking out the podcast The Dream. According to those who knew Keith at this time, he was fascinated by Scientology and neuro-linguistic programming. If you're not aware of neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, it's an interesting subject. Some sociologists have classified NLP as a quasi-religion in itself, and it's been discredited as a pseudoscience. It was big in the 1970s in the human potential movement, and it's also often referred to in the pickup artist community, which is a rabbit hole you may want to avoid. It's to do with using tricks of language, mirroring and behavioural techniques, and psychological tools to influence communication and understanding. Keith was involved in community theatre, and in 1984, he met a girl named Gina Melita in a theatre group. Gina later told the Times Union about meeting Keith when he was 24 and she was 15. The two would go to arcades together, where Keith liked to play Pac-Man and a game called Vanguard. This might ring a bell later. Keith committed statutory rape against Gina and told her to keep their relationship a secret. Gina Melita managed to get away from Keith but in the meantime, he had met her 15-year-old friend, Gina Hutchinson. Gina Hutchinson is unable to tell her story because she died by suicide in 2002. Her sister Heidi told the Times Union in 2012 that she had confronted Keith after catching him crawling through her sister's bedroom window around the time of Gina's 16th birthday. Keith told Heidi that she didn't understand, that Gina was a much older soul and that of a Buddhist goddess who was meant to be with him. He convinced Gina to drop out of school and be taught by him instead. Gina was raised Mormon and the Hutchinsons believed that the couple would marry, but this never eventuated. 
It isn't known how close their relationship remained, but Gina was certainly still involved with Keith for many years, and she ended her life at a Buddhist monastery in Woodstock at the age of 33. In 1989, Keith Raniere was listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as one of three people in the world with the highest IQs. A quick note here that the IQ or intelligence quotient test as a whole has been subject to criticism for bias and has also been used in the past to further marginalise minority and poor populations. The test that Keith Raniere took was unsupervised at home, which also brings up some questions over methodology. Keith claims he only needs two to four hours sleep each night, but he's also known to sleep up to eight hours during the day, so he's no Margaret Thatcher on that front. After a stint in computer programming and consulting, he noticed that people often worked jobs they didn't like. What a revelation. And theorised that the world would be better if people pursued goals set by themselves. He was, surprise surprise, inspired by Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, both of which I've managed to avoid reading myself, and the latter of which I must admit I'm most familiar with from its reference in the film Dirty Dancing. Both books push Rand's ideological support of individualism over collectivism. Keith believed that he could improve on Amway's methods, and so in 1990 he started his own multi-level marketing company, or MLM, Consumers Byline. Consumers Byline, that's B-U-Y-L-I-N-E, offered discounted goods and services from partner vendors to consumer members who paid annual fees for membership. Members could earn commissions for selling memberships to other people, and employee Donna Huggins told The Democrat and Chronicle in 1992 that a national membership would cost US $219, that's US $400 in today's money. According to a 2003 Forbes article, by 1996, they had over 250,000 members and made over $33 million in one year. But 1996 was the year that Consumers Byline was shut down after the New York Attorney General filed a suit stating that the company was a pyramid scheme. The shutdown was part of a settlement deal, which also involved a $40,000 payment, but seven years later, Keith had still only paid less than a quarter of that amount. In the meantime, he'd already started up another company. National Health Network was a health supplement company that sold vitamins, which Keith launched with a woman named Tony Natali. Tony had become one of the top sellers for Consumers Byline along with her husband, who had gotten them both involved early on. The successful couple attended the company headquarters in Clifton Park, New York, where Tony says that Keith took her aside, asked her what made her anxious or nervous, and showed her trigger points in her hands. He told her that if she wanted to stop smoking, which she did, to touch these trigger points whenever she felt like a cigarette. She says that she never smoked again. After this, the two would spend hours talking over the phone about her marriage and life and about her childhood trauma, which involved molestation. Within a year, Tony had left her husband and moved herself and her son to Clifton Park to be with Keith. They bought a house together but it was only in Tony's name. National Health Network was not a success, and Tony would eventually file for bankruptcy. 
Her mother helped her with attorney costs and would later file for bankruptcy herself as a result of the expenses. Nancy Salzman was born in Newark, New Jersey, in 1954. By the time she met Keith Raniere and Tony Natale in 1997 at the National Health Network shopfront, she had become a hypnotherapist who was well-versed in neurolinguistic programming. Keith was impressed by her talents and keen to work with her. Although initially sceptical, Nancy soon became Keith's most devoted follower. Keith and Nancy subjected Tony to intense sessions where they went over her childhood trauma and honed their ideas for a new self-help business. By 1997, Tony and Keith's relationship was fracturing. Tony spoken about many disturbing aspects of her time with Keith, including repeated rapes, with Keith telling her that they needed to do this so that she could share in his energy and that it was harder on him than it was on her. Another incident involved Keith making Tony keep her recently deceased dog's body in her freezer and look at it every day to supposedly help her deal with the death. In 1998, Keith and Nancy started Executive Success Programs, Inc., or ESP. This was a, quote, series of workshops designed to actualise human potential. Keith wrote that ESP represents the change humanity needs in order to alter the course of history. Program attendees were supposedly taught how to define the right goals and change negative behaviours. Students had to sign non-disclosure agreements, and courses cost upwards of US $5,000. Days were long, with classes lasting up to 13 hours, and coloured sashes were worn to denote rank. It took more classes to rank up, And if a higher-ranked student entered a room, other students had to stand to show respect. They also had to bow to each other and to Keith. By this time, Tony had sent her now 10-year-old son back to live with his father, and in a later court case, she claimed that Keith had manipulated her into doing so. She finally left Keith in 1999 and told Forbes that he had brainwashed her, telling her that their future child would alter the course of history. Keith denied that he ever said this. Tony and her family were harassed by associates of Keith for years to come, and she told the Times Union in 2012 that a decade after leaving, she was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. That year, 2009, was also the year her brother died by suicide. As of late 2014, Keith was still filing lawsuits against Tony, the latest accusing her of felony computer trespassing, though the case was later dismissed. Tony Natale told Albany reporter Chet Harden for Metroland in 2016, quote, Keith's ultimate goal has always been to have his own commerce, his own language, his own people where he is the king. The people believe he is God. He believes he's God. Back at the tail end of the 90s, Keith had been working to create a pool of a dozen or so women that he could have sexual relations with. They weren't allowed to talk about this, and they weren't allowed to have sex with anyone other than Keith, which was a sure sign of things to come.
Keith and Nancy created Nexium, spelled N-X-I-V-M, and not to be confused with the similarly named drug that helps with gastric reflux, in 2003 as an umbrella organisation for ESP and Keith's other various organisations, and Nancy Salzman became its president. Nexium's website described it as a, quote, professional business providing educational tools, coaching and trainings to corporations and people from all walks of life. The philosophy was, quote, a new ethical understanding that allows humanity to rise to its noble possibility. There were centres across North and South America, with headquarters in Albany, New York. Claims that Nexium would make about the potential of its teachings included curing people with Tourette's syndrome, increasing moral decision capacity and intelligence in college students, and scientific innovation in teaching children to be fluent in up to 13 languages. More about that later. Keith called his psychological method rational inquiry and trademarked it in America, referring to the method as a technology. As part of the process, exploration of meaning, or EM, sessions were where a more senior Nexium member would intensely question a more junior member, sometimes for a fee, apparently to help them with internal conflict. Anti-cult campaigner Rick Ross compared EMs with Scientology's auditing sessions. Interestingly, an application in Australia by First Principles Incorporated to patent the rational inquiry method on behalf of Keith Raniere was refused in 2011. The decision stated, quote, The present application has been subject to three adverse examination reports, with the most recent maintaining objections of lack of clarity, that the claims are not directed to a manner of manufacture, and that they do not involve an inventive step. Under other grounds of objection, the Australian ruling also said that, quote, While dressed up in somewhat convoluted terminology, what appears from the description is that the claims are directed to very common processes of counselling and therapy or personal motivation that are described in the documents cited, and these would clearly form part of the common general knowledge of those practising in the relevant art. I think it's worth noting here that from all I've read, Keith Raniere was in no way trained to be practising counselling or therapy. Members of Nexium, like those who participated in ESP, were asked to sign non-disclosure agreements and to not talk about certain aspects of the so-called teachings. Teachings or workshops could cost thousands of dollars. Members were required to take more and more classes and recruit more people in if they wanted to rise in rank and reach goal levels, which had commission incentives. Many students ended up having to work for Nexium in order to pay off debts they accumulated from taking the classes. One aspect of the teachings involved punishments. For example, CBC reported on a guitar player who wanted to lose weight, agreeing that he would give his guitar to his coach if he didn't reach his weight loss goal. There were two levels of classes, ethos and intensives. Ethos classes were only a couple of hours at a time, and less involved, while intensives were multi-day events where former students spoke of inadequate food supply, controlled heating of rooms at high temperatures, and a feeling of intimidation, according to Chet Hardin's 2006 article for Metroland, Stress in the Family. Chet Hardin, who has a book coming out with Tony Natali about her experiences, spoke to a former member using the pseudonym Maria. 
Maria explained that the Nexium belief system was called the Matrix, and there were various modules that made up the Matrix, which was a whole new way of seeing the world. Modules had subject names such as money and control, freedom and surrender, and were supposed to explore various parts of the human condition. One called The Fall was about suppressives and how they developed an anti-conscience whereby bad things felt good and good things felt bad to them. Students were working towards integration, which only Keith had achieved when Maria was involved, though Nancy Salzman was close. Her sash was coloured gold. Keith's lawyer, Mark Agnifilo, would later tell Megan Kelly in a 2018 interview for Today, quote, The key with Nexium, it's really an ethical view, and if I had to put it in the smallest of terms, it's taking full responsibility for every aspect of your life, never seeing yourself as a victim of something else. Students were told about Keith Raniere's brilliance, about how he was saying complete sentences by the age of one, reading by the age of two, and doing college-level maths before he went to high school. They were to call Keith Vanguard, and Nancy was prefect. At their first class, they had to thank a picture of Keith that hung on the wall, and they were given a 12-point mission statement to recite each day. The gist of this was around personal responsibility, not being a victim, success relying on interdependence, and that successful ethical people should be in control of the world's resources. One point of the mission statement included, quote, I pledge to ethically control as much of the money, wealth and resources of the world as possible within my success plan. Self-improvement is something I'd say we should all be committed to, but there's a real problem when the organisations that purport to help with personal issues are completely unregulated, in contrast to licensed psychologists and counsellors. American psychoanalyst Jamison Webster told The Guardian, quote, There's nothing wrong with a self-help workshop but people who are attracted to change and being changed are vulnerable to the kind of leader we see in cult situations. Manipulative, interested in control, and highly narcissistic. Those who became heavily involved were known as Nexians, and they could pay $2,000 and upwards to attend Vanguard Week in August in Silver Bay, New York, as a week-long conference and celebration timed to coincide with Keith's birthday. Sarah and Claire Bronfman were born in 1976 and 1979 respectively to Edgar Bronfman Sr., billionaire heir to the Seagram liquor fortune, and his third and fourth wife, Georgiana, known as George. And yes, he married her twice, once in 1975 and then once again after their 1983 divorce, though the reconciliation ended in a second divorce and George went on to marry the English actor Nigel Havers. Claire never finished high school, but became an accomplished horse trainer and competitive jumper, while Sarah was better known as a party animal and socialite. In 2002, Sarah was 25 and her marriage was falling apart. 
Looking to bring more meaning to her life, she attended an ESP class and was sold on it almost immediately, then convinced her then 23-year-old sister to attend as well. With Keith's encouragement, the sisters brought their father Edgar to a class, which he enjoyed, and he then undertook private counselling sessions with Nancy Salzman. On the 13th of October 2003, Forbes magazine published an article about Keith Raniere and his various organisations, mainly concentrating on ESP. At the time, Forbes said that ESP was making $4 million a year, while Keith claimed that he didn't take any salary from the organisation's income. The article detailed high-profile people who had taken courses, including the acting chief executive of Enron, daughter of the then-Mexican president Vicente Fox, Ana Cristina Fox, son of former Mexican president Carlos Salinas de Gotari, Emiliano Salinas, and the Bronfman sisters. Edgar Bronfman Sr. told Forbes that he hadn't seen his daughters in months and that he now considered ESP to be a cult. The Forbes article, entitled Cult of Personality, contrasted ESP with Scientology, Landmark Forum, and EST, Werner Erhardt's, quote, much-criticised groupthink program. Usage of the term suppressives for those who see good but want to destroy it, that is, who criticise ESP, certainly echoes Scientology. And riffing on the key theme of personal responsibility, parasites was the term given to people who might otherwise be seen as victims, accused of demanding attention for their problems. Here's a fun quote about Keith Raniere from the report. He speaks slowly and methodically, with digression upon digression, using words he has defined for himself and then pausing to explain each term. You might think it pure genius, or maybe horse manure. Journalist Michael Friedman, who wrote the Forbes article, spoke with psychiatrist Carlos Rueda, who had treated three patients following their experiences with Nexium. One was suffering from hallucinations after endless hours of workshops and ended up being admitted to hospital. Another had a psychotic episode. Earlier in 2003, ESP had gone after anti-cult campaigner Rick Ross, launching an expensive lawsuit alleging defamation as well as copyright violation and violation of non-disclosure agreements by former students after Rick published ESP's 16-day training manual on his website. Rick had been engaged by Rochelle and Morris Sutton, who were concerned about their children's involvement in the programs, and when their daughter Stephanie Franco agreed to leave, but their son Michael Sutton stayed, Rick suggested that they have Stephanie's course materials reviewed by mental health experts, who may be able to help Michael disengage. A Vice article by Sarah Berman from June of this year brought a few interesting reviews to my attention that are well worth a read if you're especially interested in the subject. University of California Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences, John Hochman, MD, evaluated the manual as well as the ESP website, asking the questions, Is mind control involved in this training? Is the course curriculum cult-like in some way? And what negative effects or consequences might such a program produce? He looked at aspects including secrecy, alienation from friends and family, inability to criticise, messianic pretensions, and much more in his review. He found that, quote, success in the executive success program is about becoming a more thorough espion and not an executive. 
Dr. Paul Martin, clinical psychologist and director of the Christian not-for-profit Wellspring Retreat that treats people exiting cults and coercive relationships, compared the ESP materials against Robert J. Lifton's eight criteria for thought reform, which we've discussed on this podcast before. He found examples that he felt fit most of the criteria. Rick Ross found himself under surveillance by ESP associates over the following years, believing his building attendant was paid off to tell him that there was a problem with the garbage chute in his apartment building. Rick eventually had the case against him dismissed in the US Supreme Court in a 2017 decision that set a precedent about public interest over confidentiality agreements. He said to Vice of his lawyer's pro bono work, quote, My legal team once told me if I had to pay for the legal representation I received, it would have been $2 million. You can see what his strategy was, to break you through litigation. In spite of this and the Forbes expose that Vanity Fair would later call devastating for Nexium, the organisation had many more years of damage left in it yet. Nexium had known the Forbes article was coming out, but had expected the coverage to be positive, according to former Nexian Barbara Boucher. When it came out that Claire had told her father Edgar about a $2 million loan she had given Nexium, and that this was what had made him change his mind about the merits of the organisation, Barbara says that Keith told Claire her disclosure to her father was the ethical breach that had precipitated the negative press. Claire would have to work hard to fix this while Nexium was looking at ways to improve their brand. It would later come out in court that Claire installed spyware onto her father's computer following the article's publication, and that Nexium members read all of Edgar's email correspondence from then onwards. Barbara Boucher was involved with Nexium for nine years and became important in the organisational hierarchy. She began dating Keith and was originally unaware that she was one of many girlfriends to him. Barbara was good at recruiting people into the group and she had set her sights on getting in some high-profile members. These included film director Mark Vicente, one of the three directors of What the Bleep Do We Know, an indie feature documentary that made $10 million at the box office and that many scientists described as full of pseudoscience. In fact, reviewer John Gorenfeld for Salon said that the film, quote, appears to be an infomercial for a controversial New Age sect. Mark and the two other directors were students of Ramtha's School of Enlightenment, which has itself faced accusations of being a cult by other former students, the founder's own ex-husband and her ex-bodyguard. And according to Rolling Stone, Mark Vicente's then-girlfriend had been expelled from a sect herself, too, Tia Banks grew up in the Radio Church of God, which became the Worldwide Church of God, and is now known as Grace Communion International. Tia Banks never became too heavily involved, as she broke up with Mark Vicente in 2005 and didn't have a great deal of money to keep on paying for courses. But she told E.J. Dixon for Rolling Stone that she credited ESP with helping her overcome childhood trauma. She also told the journalist that she witnessed some problematic behaviour from both Lauren Saltzman and Keith Raniere, which she described as tantrums and as borderline violence in Keith's case. Sarah and Claire Bronfman had plenty more money at their disposal, 
and moved to New York to dedicate themselves to becoming trainers with Keith. According to Forbes, Keith had convinced the sisters of the idea that their money had come from dubious means, and that investing in Nexium would cleanse it. Sarah conceived and launched VIP training programs for the organisation, and both sisters were soon on the executive board of ESP. Sarah became Director of Humanities and helped launch ESP into the British and Irish markets, according to an archived profile on the Ethical Humanitarian Foundation website. That non-profit listed Keith Ranieri as its founder and the Bronfman sisters as co-founders. Over time, it's alleged that Sarah and Claire Bronfman took around $150 million out of their trust funds and bank accounts for ESP and Nexium activities. This included a $20 million donation to the Ethical Humanitarian Foundation, $66 million to cover Keith Ranieri's failed stock market investments, which he somehow blamed their father and the Illuminati for, $11 million to buy a jet, and $30 million on real estate. Millions were also said to have been spent on lawsuits against critics of Nexium. Nancy Salzman's daughter, Lauren Salzman, had first met Keith Ranieri when she was 21 years old, in 1998. By 2001, they were in a secret sexual relationship, which continued for many years. Other members of Keith's inner circle of women included Barbara Boucher, who as an asset management consultant helped the Bronfman sisters access their finances, Karen Unterreiner, whom he'd met in college and who was still heavily involved, and, a few short years later, actresses Sarah Edmondson, Nikki Klein and Alison Mack. Before I get into the stories of some of Nexium's most high-profile recruits, I'm going to share a couple of stories of lesser-known members whose lives were also heavily impacted. Kristen Snyder was born on the 14th of December 1967 and lived in Anchorage, Alaska with her domestic partner Heidi Clifford. She was an environmental consultant and keen kayaker who was qualified in survival training and avalanche rescue. In November 2002, she attended a 16-day intensive taught by Nancy Saltzman, and when she visited her parents afterwards, they thought that she seemed unhinged. According to Frank Parlato's Frank Report, in which he has broken many stories about Nexium, in January 2003, Keith Ranieri spoke with Kristen about experiments he wanted to run to see if his mentoring could convert gay women to heterosexuality. Quote, According to other women Ranieri has mentored, he does not use condoms when mentoring women. Frank Palato once worked in PR for Nexium before he came across some details about the organisation that he didn't like and began using his media channels to write extensively about Keith Ranieri, at one point facing litigation himself. This Frank report piece said that Kristen told friends she was pregnant by Keith and one of the Nexium teachers said to ignore her and that she was delusional. Her partner Heidi became concerned about Kristen's bizarre behaviour, which had become increasingly erratic, and went to the police to report Kristen missing on the 7th of February 2003. The following day, Kristen's truck was found abandoned at Miller's Landing campground on Resurrection Bay in Anchorage, with two handwritten notes on the passenger seat. One read, quote, 
I attended a course called Executive Success Programs, aka Nexium, based out of Anchorage, AK, and Albany, NY. I was brainwashed and my emotional center of the brain was killed slash turned off. I still have feeling in my external skin, but my internal organs are rotting. Please contact my parents if you find me or this note. I am sorry, life. I didn't know I was already dead. May we persist into the future. The other note read, quote, No need to search for my body. Kristen is presumed dead, and her body has never been located. She was 35 years old. Daniela, only known by her first name, was born in Mexico and brought into the United States illegally. In October 2003, a few days before her 18th birthday, Keith convinced her to have sex with him, the culmination of his sustained grooming of the teenager. In 2005, Keith took explicit nude photos of Daniela's younger sister, who was just 15 at the time. By 2006, Daniela was pregnant to Keith, and he insisted that she get an abortion. Then in 2008, Daniela learned that her now 18-year-old sister was pregnant to Keith, and she also then got an abortion. Their older sister Mariana had two abortions of pregnancies by Keith. When Daniela told Keith that she had feelings for another Nexium member, he punished her by confining her to a bedroom furnished with little more than a mattress for nearly two years, with Lauren Saltzman heavily involved in keeping her a virtual prisoner there. Daniela was threatened with being left at the Mexican border with no identification papers, which had been taken from her along with her phone and computer. Eventually, the threats came to fruition and in February 2012, she was indeed driven to the Mexican border and abandoned there without any documentation. Sarah Edmondson was born on the 22nd of June 1977 in Vancouver, Canada. She started acting when she was young, but went on to study a Bachelor of Fine Arts at Concordia University in Montreal. Her passion remained with acting, however, and although she racked up a lot of credits over the years, she was finding her roles unfulfilling. Sarah's IMDb listings are extensive, but if the 2006 credit of Bar Waitress in Scary Movie 4 is anything to go by, I can understand why she felt that way. If you're interested in Sarah Edmondson's story, I can highly recommend the CBC podcast series Uncover Escaping Nexium, in which her childhood friend Josh Block interviews Sarah and other key players in detail and digs deeply into the story of the cult. Sarah learned of Nexium from Mark Vicente, who she met on a film festival cruise. After the first day of her first ESP course, Sarah was quite sceptical, but Mark told her to hang in there. When she mentioned the criticisms she'd come across after an online search, he said she shouldn't believe those. By day four, she was sold. Sarah wrote for Vice in November of 2017, quote, I definitely felt like a veil of fog had been lifted. I had more clarity. I was making better decisions. I understood people better. I thought this was the key to success and happiness. But there was also this nugget that they left you with. 
that was this problem with you that you had to resolve, and of course, that required more trainings. Sarah was keen to bring Nexium's teachings to her friendship network, and especially to the actors she knew, who she felt could benefit hugely from the classes. Nikki Klein was born on the 11th of February 1983 in Vancouver, Canada, and has one brother. It's difficult to find out much about her family or early childhood online, which is an impressive achievement in this day and age, especially considering her profile. But the bio on Nikki's website is playfully tongue-in-cheek, a highlight for me being her talent for impromptu postmodern performance art that her mother often mistook for temper tantrums. A tribute to her mother's parenting on Nikki's blog in June of 2013 indicates a strong and mutually respectful relationship, and a few posts mention family holidays to her mother's Bavarian-themed skiing hometown 10 hours east of Vancouver. Nikki went to Hugh Boyd Secondary School and became vegetarian at the age of 12. She studied at the University of British Columbia and Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. She became best known as an actor for her role as Callie in Battlestar Galactica, which she played from 2003 to 2008. Nikki was recruited into Nexium in 2006 by Sarah Edmondson, who she knew from the Canadian acting scene and she would travel back and forth to the Albany headquarters for intensive courses. She reportedly gave up her hugely popular role as Callie under the influence of Keith Raniere, the writers killing off the character for her in 2008. Then she went to work for Claire Bronfman, earning just $15 an hour to dedicate her life to Nexium. A blog post from February 6, 2011, mentions Atlas Shrugged as one of Nikki's favourite books, and as it's the second time we've mentioned the Ayn Rand novel in this episode, I'll treat you to screenwriter John Rogers' oft-quoted quip about it. From his Kung Fu Monkey blog, There are two novels that can change a bookish 14-year-old's life, The Lord of the Rings and Atlas Shrugged. One is a childish fantasy that often engenders a lifelong obsession with its unbelievable heroes, leading to an emotionally stunted, socially crippled adulthood, unable to deal with the real world. The other, of course, involves orcs. Alison Mack was born on the 29th of July, 1982. Her American parents, Jonathan and Mindy, were living in Germany at the time because Jonathan had work as an opera singer there. So Alison spent the first two years of her life in Germany before the family moved back to the United States. She was one of three children, with a brother, Shannon, and sister, Robin. Alison appeared in television commercials from a very young age and studied at LA's Young Actors Space at seven. She accumulated television and film credits throughout her childhood and teen years, including Police Academy 6, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, the third straight-to-video sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and Seventh Heaven, and moved to LA when she was 16, before being cast at the age of 18 in her best-known role as Chloe Sullivan in Smallville, who she played for a decade from 2001 to 2011. Janus was billed as a women's empowerment support group that worked in proud partnership with Nexium. Alison Mack became involved in 2006 after her Smallville co-star Kristen Crook brought her along to a Janus session in Vancouver. The two were in Canada shooting for Smallville, and Sarah Bronfman and Lauren Salzman flew out especially to attend the session, knowing that Alison would be there. According to an in-depth article by Scott Johnson and Rebecca Sun for The Hollywood Reporter in May 2018, 
At this meeting, Lauren Salzman and Alison became immediate best friends, and Alison accepted an invitation to fly back in Sarah Bronfman's private jet to New York to meet Keith Ranieri himself. Considering that it would usually take a higher monetary and time investment to meet with Keith, it's clear that he was very aware of how important she might be to recruit. Alison was 23 years old. At the time she was becoming involved, Alison Mack had been dating Chad Krochuk seriously for a number of years, and they'd been living together for three. Chad told Vice that he saw the classes benefit actor friends like Kristen Kruk, who overcame crippling shyness, but he couldn't afford to keep up with all the trainings, whereas Alison could. Even so, he estimates he spent tens of thousands of dollars before he and Alison broke up in 2009 at which point he still believed Nexium was mainly beneficial for her. It was also in 2009 that there was an exodus of nine senior Nexians. Led by Barbara Boucher, the group of nine accused Keith and Nancy of concerns about Nexium's operations, including a lack of transparency. Vanity Fair reported that their letter to the two included an itemised bill for $2.1 million they believed they were owed. Instead, Barbara would end up declaring bankruptcy as a result of expensive lawsuits filed by the Bronfman sisters. Barbara would later tell Megan Kelly on Today about her theory that this group of nine leaving was the impetus for Keith deciding to devise a better way to hold more control over his inner circle of women. While the exodus was certainly a blow to Nexium, resulting in the closure of several centres, it also resulted in Sarah Edmondson's Vancouver chapter becoming more popular than ever, as the closest Seattle centre was one of the closures. The group left in April of 2009, and in May of that year, the Bronfman sisters secured none other than the Dalai Lama to speak at a Nexium-related event under the banner of the World Ethical Foundations Consortium. He had actually cancelled the speaking engagement under public scrutiny over associating with a known cult-like group, and it's alleged that the sisters flew to India to personally beg him to come through. Some say that there were large sums of money involved as well. The Dalai Lama spoke at the Albanese Palace Theatre on the 6th of May 2009. An email published in Forbes shows Edgar Bronfman Sr. writing to Claire Bronfman in 2011, denying claims by Keith that he was funding Rick Ross to sabotage Nexium. Quote, whether or not you want to believe me, I do not lie, and I love you too very much. Someone is not telling you the truth. Why don't you try and figure out who that might be? Who has something to gain? Certainly not me. What would be my motive? The sign-off line was, tons of love, even if not requited, pops. Edgar passed away two years later, at the age of 84, and never did manage to rebuild his relationship with his daughter. Also in 2011, Catherine Oxenberg, the daughter of Yugoslavian royalty best known for her role as Amanda Carrington in the 80s soap Dynasty, brought her daughter India along to a Nexium session. 
India was born in 1991 and by 2011 had had a few small acting credits, though according to IMDb, her most recent film role in 2014 was Crewside, as assistant to Piers Brosnan on The November Man. The 20-year-old became heavily involved with the self-help organisation. Then in 2012, Nexium received its next round of damaging press coverage. The Albany Times Union put out a series of articles in February that year and spoke to former followers about how Keith liked the women in his inner circle to keep their hair long and to stay as thin as possible. Apparently, if they didn't exercise and eat a vegetarian diet, he said that it would drain his own health. They were also to reject conventional relationship ideas, which I have no problem with except that this was clearly only a one-way street. The Times Union articles were the ones that detailed Keith Raniere's earlier grooming and statutory rape of teenagers when he was 24 that were mentioned towards the start of this episode. And they also had details of the experiences of Tony Natale, a woman named Christine Marie who had been involved from back in the National Health Network days, Svetlana Kotlin, who was told after ending a sexual relationship with Keith that it might kill him if she didn't return as he was connected to her, and an unnamed victim of Keith's who was 12 years old when she met him in 1990. The then 29-year-old Keith offered her free tutoring, which her mother, who was working for Consumers Byline at the time, accepted gratefully. She says that Keith committed statutory rape against her close to 60 times. She received counselling for the abuse and did report it to the police, but didn't end up pursuing charges. Kristen Kruk is believed to have left Nexium around the time of these reports, and Frank Parlato suggests that the accusations of underage girls were the tipping point for her. She had been instrumental in setting up the website Girls by Design three years earlier, which had aims to help improve the self-esteem of teenage girls. Keith's response to the Times Union articles was, of course, to sue the journalist. James Adato had been working on many stories about Nexium over the years, and he was named alongside Vanity Fair journalist Susanna Andrews and a blogger in a trial that accused them of computer hacking, though not, as reported in The Nation, of getting any of their facts incorrect. The case sent the respected investigative reporter on a leave of absence before it was eventually dismissed in September 2015, by which point James Odato had departed the publication for good. Meanwhile, in 2014, an inner circle Nexian, Kristen Keefe, cut her ties with Keith. He had fathered a son named Galen with her, though he told people that Kristen was Galen's adoptive mother and that the child was an orphan brought to them after the death of his biological mother. Apparently many in wider Nexian circles believed that Keith was celibate, and this cover story was required to maintain the charade. Frank Parlato also reported on a Nexian program called Rainbow Cultural Gardens, which was set up by Keith. It took children from a very young age to be looked after by a different person each day of the week, who would speak to them in a different language all day. Quote, the Rainbow Program costs $120,000 per year per child. Babysitters are called Multicultural Development Specialists, MDS, and paid between $10 to $15 per hour. In case you're interested to know, Keith could only speak the one language himself. It's possible to see this program as potentially fulfilling an ulterior motive of keeping mothers from forming strong bonds with their young children. Rainbow Cultural Gardens had a website that showed 11 centres as operational at one time, 
including one in London's affluent Kensington district in the UK. Kristen felt that her son was being experimented on and became concerned for his welfare. She and Galen went into hiding, and many were surprised at the news that a woman so devoted to Keith had left him. By the time she exited, Kristen was 44 years old, and according to the Times Union, had been involved with Keith for over half her life, dating back to consumers' byline. Some of the ongoing court cases were what had provided journalists with the information that fed their coverage of Nexium by way of evidence. But though it worked against him in this particular way, the litigiousness of Keith Raniere and the money that was at his disposal may have succeeded in another, creating a chilling effect on other publications covering the stories. So, in spite of the seriousness of the allegations that had been coming to light, it wouldn't be until 2017, when knowledge of a secret society within Nexium started to come out, that things would eventually begin to fall apart for Keith Raniere. According to court testimony, DOS was created in 2015. The letters stand for Dominus Obsequius Sororium, which roughly translates from the Latin to Master of the Servile Sisters. DOS, also known as the Vow, was fairly predictably a pyramid structure with Keith at the top. Underneath him were masters and slaves. Slaves could recruit their own slaves and become masters, but they would still continue to serve their master. Masters were to find women who wanted to advance further with Nexium and offer them a life-changing opportunity, but then tell them that to find out more, they would need to provide what was termed collateral. Collateral could be compromising photographs, damning confessions on tape, titles to assets, essentially anything that could be used as blackmail material. Specific examples of one woman's collateral that was provided in court included a contract handing over custody of her children to Keith if she broke her commitment. The slave-master relationship wasn't revealed until appropriate collateral was secured, and then if there was any resistance to the terms, the master was coached to downplay them and say that women are slaves to all kinds of things in life. The recruit was told that DOS was a women-only group. Keith's involvement wasn't revealed to them. If they wanted to learn more, then more collateral was required. Slaves usually performed personal assistant-type duties for their master, and there was pressure to perform an amount of, quote, acts of care, equivalent to a full-time job, under threat of having collateral released. Sometimes a master would give a slave an assignment of having sex with Keith, or would put a slave on an extremely low-calorie diet to get her to meet Keith's physical preferences. Readiness drills were also given to slaves, whereby a text message was sent around at any hour that required a response immediately, no matter what time of day or night. Acts of self-denial or discomfort were also common, such as freezing showers, planking, or standing up for a prolonged period of time in the early hours of the morning. The most shocking part of DOS involvement, however, was the branding initiation.
Once they were at a certain point of commitment, slaves were branded with a cauterizing iron and no anaesthetic, in a ceremony that took around 20 to 30 minutes, while the slave was held down by other slaves, all without clothes, and the whole thing was videotaped. Alison Mack later told the New York Times magazine that she had come up with the idea of branding, suggesting that tattooing wasn't intense enough. Keith Raniere's lawyer, Mark Agnifilo, told Megan Kelly for today, quote, Doss is operating on the premise that for so long women have calibrated their value in regard to men. I want to make as much as a man. I wanted to be respected like a man is respected. Doss takes that idea and says, let's take men out of this sentence. Doss is a sorority, a group of women, and we're going to have some extreme protocols. Admittedly, we're going to, some of us are going to brand ourselves, absolutely, 100% voluntarily, end quote. He said about Keith's thoughts on the branding, quote, I think that it was something that the women wanted to do and that he thought it was not inappropriate if that's something that they wanted to do. Though told that the brand symbolised the four elements, earth, fire, air and water, the women later found out that the lines formed Keith Raniere's initials. In Lauren Salzman's court proceedings, she said that slaves were paddled, whipped and locked in cages as part of their training to become Keith's sex slaves. Lauren was one of eight women who answered directly to Keith as their master, in a group that also included Alison Mack and Nikki Klein. Less is known about the five other women who worked their way to the top, which may be because they didn't start out as famous white actors. According to a Forbes article, there were almost 100 slaves altogether in DOS. In February 2016, in posts still available on her account, Alison Mack was tweeting to British actress Emma Watson, quote, I participate in a unique human development and women's movement I'd love to tell you about. As a fellow actress, I can relate so well to your vision and what you want to see in the world. I think we could work together. Let me know if you're willing to chat. In February 2017, Alison Mack and Nikki Klein are reported to have gotten married to each other. There's some conjecture that this was to do with visa issues and under instruction from Keith. In mid-May 2017, Mark Vicente, the film director who had gotten Sarah Edmondson involved, found out some details about DOS from her. The information he heard at long last caused him enough concern to leave Nexium and speak to the FBI. He would later testify, quote, I finally asked myself the question I was too terrified to ask. What if he is not the person I think he is? What if this is a mask to do heinous things to people? He also contacted Catherine Oxenberg about his concerns over her daughter India's involvement in DOS. Meanwhile, Nexium was continuing to diversify, and on the 30th of May 2017, Brock Wilbur wrote for Paste magazine about a very strange experience he had inquiring about a job with a media organisation called The Knife of Aristotle, which was purportedly created to take down fake news. After finding out that he would need to attend an unpaid five-week training at which he was told, quote, analysts get to deeply explore their belief systems and gain an understanding of the human mechanisms of perception that influence our communication and culture, end quote. Brock looked further into the organisation and found Nikki Klein listed as executive producer on the staff page. He listed the knife of Aristotle, which was taken down shortly after his article was published, amongst Nexium's other subgroups, The Source, for getting actors involved, JNS, the women's group, XOSO, related to yoga, 
and Society of Protectors, a men's group. The first story exposing DOS came out in Frank Report on the 5th of June 2017, which mentioned Alison Mack as the leader, the blackmailing and the branding. But it was an expose in the New York Times on the 17th of October 2017 that really blew the lid off the organisation, when Sarah Edmondson detailed her experiences and allowed the publication to show a photograph of her brand. She said that when she found out the brand was Keith's initials, that was her breaking point. The US Attorney's Office in Brooklyn began to take a closer look. Keith fled to Mexico on the day that the New York Times article came out, staying in a $10,000 a week luxury villa with some of his inner circle. He would remain there for five months. In February 2018, a federal court complaint was filed that requested an arrest warrant for Keith. On the 26th of March 2018, the 57-year-old was arrested and charged with sex trafficking, sex trafficking conspiracy, racketeering and forced labour conspiracy. E.J. Dixon wrote about Lauren Saltzman's experience of the arrest for Rolling Stone, quote, The man Saltzman had previously described as her most important person, her mentor, spiritual advisor and lover, the man whose initial she had chosen to brand into the flesh above her abdomen, the man who had taught her the values of love, sacrifice, personal responsibility and courage, had, when confronted with arrest, run away and hidden in a walk-in closet. Alison Mack was arrested on the 20th of April 2018 on charges of sex trafficking and forced labour conspiracy. She was released under house arrest at her parents' house in California under a bond of $5 million. Claire Bronfman was still running and financing Nexium up to the 12th of June 2018 when the website was shut down and operations suspended. The following month, on the 24th of July, Claire Bronfman, Kathy Russell, Lauren Saltzman and Nancy Saltzman were arrested. An array of charges faced them, racketeering conspiracy including identity theft, extortion, forced labour, sex trafficking, money laundering, wire fraud and obstruction of justice. Kathy Russell is the one name in there that you won't have heard earlier. My researcher Haley and I didn't come across much information about Kathy in reading about Nexium. Most mentions calling her their longtime bookkeeper. It seems as though her legal representation may have pushed the 61-year-old away from making any cooperation deals, and she invoked the fifth, her right not to self-incriminate, 75 times during her grand jury testimony. On the 12th of March 2019, 64-year-old Nancy Salzman pleaded guilty to three racketeering charges and faces a maximum 20-year jail term. Nancy is currently awaiting sentencing under house arrest on a $5 million bond. On the 25th of March, Lauren Salzman pleaded guilty to racketeering and racketeering conspiracy and will face up to 20 years jail time for each count. In her testimony, Lauren said that the branding was the most painful thing that she'd ever experienced, and of confining Daniela to a bedroom for almost two years, quote, Of all the things I did in this case and all the crimes that were committed, this was the worst thing I did. She said that she was desperate to have a child, and when she asked for permission to have a relationship with another man, Keith lured her back with promises that it would happen, so she wanted to prove that she was willing to do whatever it took. Lauren was never given her child, 
and the now 43-year-old is currently on bail under strict conditions and awaiting sentencing. On the 8th of April, 36-year-old Alison Mack pled guilty to racketeering and racketeering conspiracy and awaits sentencing under the same maximum terms as Lauren Saltzman. Associated Press reported that she wept as she apologised to the women who were exploited and told the judge, quote, I believed Keith Raniere's intentions were to help people and I was wrong. She also said in court that she had been lost and must take full responsibility for her conduct. India Oxenberg had managed to leave Nexium ahead of the arrests, some reports saying that it was because of love. Her mother Catherine published a book in August 2018 called Captive, A Mother's Crusade to Save Her Daughter from a Terrifying Cult, and told Megan Kelly on Today that if she hadn't acted to get India out, her daughter may have been sitting where Alison Mack is right now. On the 19th of April 2019, Bookkeeper Kathy Russell pled guilty to racketeering conspiracy and visa fraud and was released on a $25,000 bond. Kathy is currently awaiting sentencing and faces up to 10 years in prison. Also on the 19th of April, 40-year-old Claire Bronfman pleaded guilty to conspiracy to conceal and harbour illegal aliens for financial gain and fraudulent use of ID documents. She faces up to 25 years in prison and is currently awaiting sentencing on a $100 million bond. By the time of the court proceedings, the New York Times reported that Sarah Bronfman had drifted away from Nexium, having married and had children. Edgar Bronfman Sr. wrote in his glowing letter of recommendation after his initial experiences with Nancy Salzman and ESP, quote, When my daughters asked me to get involved with executive success programs, I thought the worst thing that could happen would be that I'd learn something, how wrong his words would turn out to be. All of the women are likely to face lower-than-maximum jail terms as a result of pleading guilty and for negotiating various deals. Some high-level members like Nikki Klein and Karen Unterreiner have not faced any charges, and it's unclear at this stage whether this is due to any specific arrangements made with investigators. Keith Raniere's trial began on the 7th of May 2019 in Brooklyn's federal court and was overseen by Judge Nicholas G. Garofas. He pleaded not guilty to seven counts, three related to sex trafficking, two related to racketeering, forced labour conspiracy and wire fraud conspiracy. The racketeering portion of his charges included production and possession of child pornography, identity theft, fraud computer hacking and extortion. The prosecution stated that Keith used shame and humiliation to coerce women into having sex with him, that he subjected his followers to sadistic punishments and starvation diets. The defence stated that DOS was run by the women, that women joined of their own free will, and that all sex with Keith Ranieri was consensual. I've read through a portion of the complaints as well as court testimony, and there's some pretty disturbing stuff in there. When the eight women who answered directly to Keith under DOS would meet, three times a week, they said they would have to send him a group photograph of them all naked, with their legs spread. They said that if their brands weren't on full display, and they weren't looking happy enough, or their legs weren't spread widely enough, Keith would ask for a better photo. Slaves would often be given what was called the assignment, which was to seduce Keith, Lauren Saltzman testified that when she confronted Keith about the assignment, he said it was a growth experience for the women. In evidence was an unnamed woman's complaint, in which she spoke about the assignment. According to the complaint, 
her master had instructed her to remain celibate for six months, and when that period was up, told her that her assignment was to do anything Keith asked her to. Keith came by and took her out for a walk in the middle of the night, asking what the worst thing he could tell her to do was. She told him that initially she'd thought something sexual, but the worst thing he could really do would be to ask her to kill herself or someone else. The next night, she met up with Keith again, and he ordered her to remove all her clothes, then critiqued her body. Following this, he blindfolded her, drove her to an unknown location, and tied her to a table. There, a different person performed oral sex on her as Keith watched and commented. Over the following months, there was repeated sexual intercourse and contact with Keith that she felt was a required part of her commitment to DOS, and that she feared if she didn't go along with, her collateral would be released. She was to remain celibate apart from sexual contact with Keith. The complaint also said that Keith told her that as her master's master, he was her grandmaster, and that he had conceived of DOS himself. Lauren Saltzman testified that following the media reports about DOS, Keith instructed the women to claim full ownership of the secret group and to say that Keith had no knowledge of it. She testified that she did as she was told and lied to everyone about this. As Rick Ross told Megan Kelly, quote, Keith Raniere would tell his followers, there are no victims, you must take responsibility. But yet he, in his current position, seems to be claiming, I am a victim of persecution and takes no responsibility for his actions. Rolling Stone reported from the trial that Keith had plans to build a dungeon for use in DOS slaves' penance, penance being punishments for supposed wrongdoings that included whippings with a leather strap. One of the women testified that she had purchased various sex toys and had planned to purchase a cage for use during penance sessions before DOS was exposed in the media. The issue of consent in kink encounters came up under cross-examination from Keith Raniere's lawyer Mark Agnifilo, but the kink community consensus is that the use of blackmail would generally violate any idea of free and continuous consent. Following the intense six-week trial, it took less than five hours for the jury to find the now 58-year-old Keith Raniere guilty on all seven charges, and he was convicted on the 19th of June 2019. He is held without bail and is currently awaiting sentencing, facing a minimum of 15 years and up to life in prison. Be sure to check the show notes for any updates on sentencing that have happened since the recording of this episode. Mark Agnifilo indicated outside the court that Keith maintains his innocence and intends to appeal the decision. A statement archived from the ESP website in 2017 ends with the words, quote, Nexium firmly believes in human empowerment, excellence, freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Nexium firmly opposes and condemns violence, victimhood, dishonour and abuse. And Nexium firmly opposes any criminal products from criminal minds. Today I'll leave the final word with Barbara Boucher. Writing for Art Voice in May 2019, she said, quote, I pray that Keith remains in jail the remainder of his life for the harm caused to many. I don't believe he can be rehabilitated.
you can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via patreon.com slash ltaspod. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was researched by the wonderful Hayley Gray, with some additional research by me, and it was written and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould, whose incredible band, The Crooked Fiddle Band, have a new album out called Another Subtle Atom Bomb, which I highly recommend you check out. They're also touring Australia soon, and their live show is mind-blowing. Information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 3 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out some of their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from sport to gaming to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Thanks for listening and hope you'll join me again next month. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.